So today I'm interviewing uh, Cassandra uh, Harriman. So she's a family physician and uh, one of the maternity doctors. Uh, and until September, she was um, uh, um, on the board of div the division of family uh, practice. So she had served there for for six years. So thanks for chatting to me today. Yeah, of course. Okay. So how do you, uh, I mean, now that I say it, I'm wondering how you uh, manage it all <laughs> with the three kids and, uh, and, and doing the board and on call and everything. Yeah. Um, so, uh, often I feel like not very well, but it's a constant balancing act. Um, um, a very supportive family. Uh, we have a lot of help. We hired a nanny this year, which has been life changing. Um, the board meetings being on Zoom allows me to, you know, nurse nurse the youngest ones before bed mm -hmm. <laughs> while while we're meeting, and um, I'm constantly adapting. And I, I work part time, so okay. Um, and the whole combination, yeah, uh, makes it possible. Yeah, yeah. And so, how how old are your how old are your kids again? Um, they're almost seven, uh, four, and one and a half. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so you're you're a I understand that you're a, uh, a somewhat of a local, as in you grew up in the lower mainland. I did. I grew up in North Delta and went to UBC. Did three degrees there, and then came and settled here. Okay. Okay. And I understand that you worked in uh, or studied in Sweden for a while. Oh, um, yeah, in my third year of my undergrad, I wanted to travel, so I did an exchange to Sweden and just spent the year there um, doing courses. The, the course load is a lot lighter there. They really value quality of life and other experiences there, so I did a lot of traveling during my year of studies there. Um, got to see a lot more of Europe and, yeah, and then came back to finish off my undergrad here at UBC. Okay, so we're... we're um uh, so where were you in Sweden? So I actually uh, yeah. spent a few years growing up in Norway. So I, when oh, I was wow. about six to about ten, so my dad was working there. So we 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 lived in Oslo. So we used to we used to go to we did we did a couple of road trips through um, um, Sweden, and we used to go like kind of cross the border to to do some cheap shopping and stuff. <laughs> so, so yes, I heard about that. Yeah, uh, the, the cheaper shopping in Sweden than in Norway. That, that's right. Yeah. In, yeah, I was in Uppsala. It's about an hour north of Stockholm. Okay. Okay. It's a, a university town. Yeah. Really fun. It, there were a lot of exchange students from all over Europe. A few from North America, but it was a, an eye-opening experience. And I did go to Oslo too. I really enjoyed Oslo, and then all the way to Bergen and. Um, Scandinavia is beautiful, a lot like Canada, actually, in many ways. Yeah, it's probably one of the reasons I kind of ended up out here. I think I think I I enjoyed my childhood in Scandinavia, and then uh, I came back to England and thought, you know, as I grew up, I thought, you know what, I, I want my kids, you know, to have what I had a little bit, you know. So um, so I don't know whether this is uh, elsewhere. So I heard that the the cost of alcohol goes up per hour in the bars in Stockholm. Is, is that true? Per hour? <laughs> yeah, yeah, as in it was like, you know, as, as it, as you got later into the night, it got more expensive. Oh, you know, that I didn't even, I didn't notice that. Okay. I, everything was expensive in Sweden. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I was a third year undergrad student with absolutely no money, so. 
um, <laughs> everything, but like eating out and drinking and all of that was quite expensive. They do like to have their parties, but um, mm. um, I worked at a, one of the nations, so the, instead of like a student union, all of the students are divided into nations based on where they're from, kind of like provinces. Yeah. Um, and I worked at one of those student housing thing, so everything was just provided for us. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't have to pay there, which so I'm not even familiar with, with the cost of those kinds of things. But um, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised. You know, it was it was definitely a, a, a place that likes to party, and and it was pricey to do so. Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, so did you learn any uh, Swedish? I did do a Swedish language course. Yeah. Um, I tried to practice a little bit, um, and I do remember, you know, a handful of words. But as soon as anybody heard me trying to speak Swedish, they would just revert to English. That's right. So everybody yeah. was fluent in English as well, apart from in the really small places in the mm. elderly population. So it yeah, was, it was nice because I was surrounded by another culture and, and language, but but everybody could also I could communicate really well with everybody still. So. Yeah, so they, yeah, I didn't learn any uh, Norwegian, so everybody could speak English. I went to an English school as well, um, mm -hmm. and, and you know, the TV and stuff is, they, they play, they don't dub anything, so they, it's English yeah. with subtitles if they're showing a film or something, so, I mean, it's somewhat unfortunate mm -hmm. but, uh, that I didn't learn any Norwegian, but anyway. <laughs> so, I found that really interesting, even yeah. like the German exchange students yeah. were all completely fluent in English and and other languages. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think I think Scandinavia is particularly kind of well known for this, you know, in terms of mm -hmm. English English uh, sort of speakingness, I guess. So, um yeah, so what um so uh, can you tell me a bit about how you uh, ended up um deciding to do medicine and and ending up where you are now? Okay. Um, I think I started getting interested in medicine in high school. I really liked biology and I was really interested in just the human body and trying to figure out what I wanted to do in life. And my mom um, was a nurse, so I think that had a big influence. She was a perinatal nurse, so that definitely influenced my interests and what I wanted to do with my life. I did consider nursing in my undergrad, but um, talking a little bit more and people telling me you don't really like to be told what to do and there's a lot of that in, in nursing, so you might want to consider something else, like what about medicine? And I thought that was really, yeah, a, a, an interesting thing to do, so I pursued that. I did try research for a little while. I did a master's, but quickly learned that was not for me. Um, so I, I like to just, uh, more communication with people, um, and I, want, I need to feel useful, so I think that's how I ended up in medicine, and I really value relationships too so I think that I was drawn to family medicine for that longitudinal relationship mm -hmm. and then with my mom's influence probably about maternity care and getting exposed early in med school and then um, having great experiences during residency and um, just decided that was what I wanted to do so family yeah. practice with obstetrics it was. Okay and, and so tell me about those positive experiences in sort of residency you know what what sort of. Um, yeah well in I guess it started in med school. It was just one of my early preceptors. You know, when you you have your four sessions with another another med student, and you go and you go to your preceptor's office, and like, taking blood pressure is, is new and exciting. Um, then we also got to go and and go with our preceptor and watch a delivery, and just the excitement in the room and 
uh, life-changing that experience is, um, and how my preceptor spoke of his work in maternity care and, and getting to, to take part in that part of life, um, I think is what initially drew me to it, and then the influence from hearing stories from my mom and, and things about maternity care, I just I was drawn to that. And then in residency, um, I had another, again, more preceptors that did maternity care um, and and found it a really um, energizing kind of aspect of their care. You're seeing people that are, aren't just sick and having hard times. They're excited and happy and in this stage of life where things are changing um, and changing a lot. Um, I think I was drawn to that to that side of it, too. Yeah, yeah. I guess it is. It is nice actually to see the the full circle, isn't it? Because uh, if you don't have that aspect of your practice, then uh, you know you, you, you're. I guess you're just seeing sick people, you know. Which, which, you know, you know. So it, it, I, I, I could see. I could see. You know, actually having. You know, I mean, I was like, I was like uh, having. You know, the babies come in, so I can. Yeah. See this another. Yeah, and yet, yeah, they become part of your practice as babies too, and and seeing the kids grow up and. And, and change and and how the family the family grows together I just I'm really I enjoy that part of my my practice yeah yeah so um so you um I mean I take it you must have thought about doing obstetrics and and things <clears throat> oh yes right sorry in residency you know um or third year I guess in clerkship when you rotate through all the different um Rotations. I think I considered everyone, but I was really drawn to obstetrics just because of my previous desire to do that. Um, except I, I realized doing obstetrics that I really didn't like being called into a situation when things were, were not good, and and to have to decide what are we going to do here? How important is it that we get baby out now? Those kinds of things. I liked I liked following people that that didn't have complications in their labor and delivery too, but or, or minor complications and following through from beginning to end. So um, that's why I decided to do low-risk obstetrics. And and as well, to, to be a family doctor and be able to do that, I really like that longitudinal relationship with patients. And I'm sure some obstetrician and gynecologists have that, but mm. I wanted to do it from a, a family practice point of view. So, mm-hmm. so, yeah, I'm really glad I made that decision. I think it was okay. the right decision for me. Okay, and you, and you worked at some uh, bigger hospitals doing maternity. Is that, is that correct? Yes, yeah, I did some training. Um, I did the St. Paul's residency program, so oh. some, some training at St. Paul's, and as well just to get more experience in obstetrics, I uh, worked at BC Women's, and that's where I started after I graduated. Um, and, I mean, it's a great, a great hospital. There are consultants all over the place, and when you need help, the whole team is there, the pediatric team is there, if you need a baby's resuscitation, and they don't take long to get there. Um, so that was a really nice place, actually, to start. Um, practicing, but um, I didn't want to live in the city. My husband and I decided that we wanted to live in the in the um, suburbs, so we looked around a little bit. Um, actually, yeah, that's how I came to White Lux, South Surrey. But I was I did a rotation here just to exploring different communities that that offer obstetrics at their hospitals. Pizarre just one of them, and I came and rotated at George Street Family Practice with, and at the Pizarre Maternity Clinic with Dr. Rachel Bright and Dr. Kim Veldhaus. And really had a great experience and was invited to the, the Hello Goodbye um, dinner dance at Christmas. And I think that was a, a huge um, reason we felt so welcomed and invited. The community was great and friendly and supportive. And we were really happy with that impre- first impression. So 
I think that is a big reason of um, what drew us to the community in the first place. Okay, so when, when did you uh, when did you move into the community? In twenty fourteen. Oh, oh, 2014. Yeah. Okay. 2014, yes. Okay. Yep. So, so wow. not 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 as long as I thought. Okay. All right. No. So, okay. So you must have gone straight into the board then, <laughs> as soon as you arrived. Almost. Yeah, yes, yeah. I was, I was the new, the new grad voice. Yeah. <laughs> we need somebody who has this new locum, and um, I was locuming actually until just. Last year, until November, I've been a long-term locum. Yeah. Um, so they wanted that that we were we didn't have much representation from the newer people to the community or um, younger grads or yeah, locums. Yeah. So that was the voice that I brought to the table. Okay, and how did you find that sort of that I guess that leadership um, experience or that that journey? Yeah. I guess I'm I'm really glad I did it. At first, I didn't know I had an interest in that. Mm. Um, I was approached and I went and talked with Nancy, the division executive director at the time, and she reassured me that it would be fine. I'll, I'd just be asked for my opinion and I could learn as I went. And and it was a really positive experience. I liked to, uh, the, it was such an efficient group. Um, we accomplished so much in a short time. Um, and really, I feel it had an impact on the community. It was, it was really um, on the ground help and and when there was an issue there was a team that was ready to support and try to find a solution that that resulted in actual change um, that I could see um, so that was really appealing to me um, and then to be part of that change too and represent the voices of my colleagues and um, and just see how the community worked and understand that at a different level I hadn't done that before um, so yeah I, I enjoyed it and I did the GPSC leadership course as as Part of that, I don't think I would have done it if I hadn't done any board work or even known about it. And I learned a lot about um, leadership. I still have a ton to learn, but it was a good start, um, my experience on the board. So, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe in the future there will be more more leadership positions. We'll see. Yeah. Okay, so do, do you want to tell me a bit about your sort of involvement with our uh, local maternity unit and antenatal unit and so on, antenatal clinic? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yes. So when I moved here, I was very fortunate that a position... Um, opened up soon after I moved that I just fell into. Um, so I became one of the Monday doctors. We Normally there are 10 of us um, as part of the PFAS Maternity Clinic, and most of us have practices in the area, family practices, um, or some other work hospitalist or work with another maternity group. Um, and we work once every two weeks at the maternity clinic, um, and most of us do call in clinic at the same time. It's a 24-hour call shift, and we just see patients in the clinic during the day, and then continue on call until the next morning. Um, we work with um, obstetrical and pediatric colleagues, so whenever there's a high-risk patient or situation, then we involve the team, and anesthesiologists will do the epidurals for us and spinal for C-sections. Um, and that's the way the maternity clinic works, so patients can self-refer or be referred by their family doctors. Uh, we'll follow people right from the beginning, from finding out they were pregnant or some some physicians in the community who feel comfortable providing and want to provide the, all the antenatal care will refer to us closer mid mid pregnancy or closer to the end of pregnancy and we'll just take over from there. Mm-hmm. Um, but we yeah we provide whatever is needed. Okay, and how many yeah. how many doctors are involved in the program? Yeah, there are usually ten. So mm-hmm. we each have our day of the week. There's two Monday doctors and they alternate. 
um, working one week and then off the following week. Um, and yeah, normally 10. We're down a little bit from retirements and from um, medical leaves, but hopefully we'll be able to recruit in the near future. Okay, okay. And um, so it sounds like you actually joined the community to, to, to be able to do this uh, kind of work. That was a, a big, yeah, yeah. I, I, that was one of my conditions of where we settled. Yeah. had to provide maternity care so I could do that. And I was just lucky there was a position available. So, okay. Okay. And, and so um, tell me a bit about the unit, uh, the unit itself. <clears throat> yes. Um, the maternity unit at or Peace Arch is gorgeous. It was renovated in 2010, um, mostly funded by the foundation. Um, and the rooms are beautiful. People come from afar to deliver at Peace Arch, <laughs> partly because of the rooms and the experience. It's a great, it's a great program and a great unit. Um, so we have eight delivery rooms. Uh, seven funded. They're big. They each have lots of space and most of them have a soaker tub um, and a shower. One of them is wheelchair accessible with just the shower. They have a bed for the partner. They have a mini fridge um, and they're all private and, and people speak highly of our rooms and their experience at Peace Arch. We have a, a negative pressure room too in case that's needed and then an assessment room with two beds and then two beds where people can be admitted if they need to before they're in labor or monitoring or treatment or, or whatever that may be. Mm. Okay, so that negative pressure room would have presumably been quite busy during COVID or, I mean, it must have come in. No, the negative pressure room, a delivery oh. room. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah. Um, and now, yes, it, it's come to a point where everybody gets swabbed when they're coming in yeah, yeah. and a lot of people don't even know they're positive so it's, it's past the time that they've been already assessed and moved around and things before we actually know they're positive so now it's we're not as as uh, picky but they, we do try to put them right into a room a delivery room if they're in labor and known to be covid positive okay okay all right and okay yeah i i, I so my um we had our uh, second was a water water birth and our wow. first our first was uh, a little bit more medically you, you know complicated type type things so they were like mm -hmm. totally different uh deliveries um and i uh so with the second i just with our second uh rohan we just i just finished i just sort of come out of my career doing um you know training in pediatrics um mm -hmm. and so and but i was do, actually doing maternity at the time as part of my family practice rotation so i i wow. have to say i i found the water delivery quite stressful it was probably got nothing to do with the actual delivery it's just me uh, just from <laughs> i i kind of found it i always found it quite scary from a peds point of view um for, right, for whatever what reason hard to not see that yeah exactly yeah and, and obviously this is quite a skewed uh, perspective isn't it but uh, you know um obviously i think i think what it was is that because it was you know where i was working there were quite low risk deliveries that would go there and maybe mm -hmm. at the unit i was working at they weren't quite set up so when then you would arrive there in as peds it would it would sometimes be a little bit uh, chaotic initially yeah so um mm -hmm. yeah so um but anyway i mean they were both fine so, <laughs> so 
<laughs> I, I, I survived. <laughs> so, good, good. Yeah. Here to tell the story. Yeah. So, um, in terms of, and so, in, so you, if you had a, a mum that needed sort of further care, do they stay in those seven, eight rooms or do they, you, you know, are there sort of additional beds on top of that or? Sorry, if they needed which care? So, so you've got, you said you've got seven or eight beds. So if they needed sort of postnatal care, would they stay in those rooms oh. or would they be moved out to? Yes, yeah. Usu- usually they stay in those rooms. Mm-hmm. So that's their room once they get admitted, they stay in the delivery room and then until they go home. So for example, if mom has some like bled a lot or some complication where she needs extra, extra care, then she would just stay there until she goes home. Um, Sometimes, we do have eight rooms that um, just seven are funded. That was what I was at, by nursing support-wise. We're often using the eight rooms despite lack of funding and just making do. Um, but there are two beds, for example, if we need a delivery room for another mom coming in and we don't have any empty beds, um, a mom recovering from a C-section that's planning to go home later that day or something might be moved over into the other, the other shared. There's one shared room. It does have a divider between it but it's not completely private. So they would sometimes be moved into those two beds mm-hmm. if we need the delivery suite. But that's only if we don't have enough space. Like if they're full of other laboring or early postpartum moms. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and I understand that there are some, you do have some, uh, a, a couple of neonatal beds, but because of staffing or, the, you know, uh, I think the, they're, they're not really used. Is that right? They're just used temporarily? Okay. Yes, thank you. I forgot to talk about the nursery. We have a nursery. Um, it's stocked. It has eggs and things, and we occasionally use it to observe a baby who needs closer observation, but we don't have nursing support for it. So we don't have any nurses that are trained in pediatrics. We have All of our nurses have neonatal resuscitation training, no. but not um, observation training and treatment training for past that initial stabilization phase. So if a newborn needs any more than a few hours of observation, then they are transferred to a, a higher level of care. Okay, so actually, so, so the, 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 the maternity nurses are kind of almost 90, well, maybe I'm over speaking, 90% skilled to do that job, but, that, you know, would they, what would they need extra, I guess, to... Yeah, um, probably yeah. just a, a, a NICU training course. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're looking into that right now, actually. Okay. In, in our research of how to make this... He's a, a place that that can retain those skilled pediatricians and and um, and look after babies a little bit longer. What would we need? So yeah. So we'll do, do you want to talk? Minutes. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, the sort of challenges facing the the, the unit? Sure. Um, so our biggest challenges in the last few years have been one um, nursing support. There's a shortage of nurses in every every field, um, but especially in maternity care, and it's not just our hospital, it's our region, it's, it's the whole province, it's the whole country actually in maternal nursing. So, um, so yeah, we're often having trouble filling shifts. Our, our lines are full, but when there's a sick call, it's difficult to, to fill that shift. So that's one of the reasons we have to divert patients sometimes. And our other major challenge is um, retaining, recruiting and retaining pediatricians. Um, it is a smaller hospital, and because those babies who are sick often need to be transferred if they need any more than a few hours of observation, then it's not as um, appealing to a pediatrician to work at our site. So 
Mm. We've had trouble covering the unit fully with pediatricians. Okay, okay. And my, my, but my understanding is that not all of these babies are particularly sick in that, you know, sometimes you have a situation where there's risk factors for infection and the babies end up having uh, some testing and prophylactic antibiotics, but they're, but they're, they're well. And then you're kind of suggesting that you're saying that they, they sort of kind of get transferred out whilst... Yeah. 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 Okay. For the one or two days of observation, that's exactly it. So, a ten percent of babies born will need some sort of uh, assistance with transitioning to room air in life um, outside of the womb. So, so those babies, um, if they need, um, for example, transient tachypnea, which is not uncommon, they just have a fast respiratory rate or something. The differential is infection. So, those babies that have, that are not transitioning well a few hours later. Um, they often get put on antibiotics just to make sure because early intervention is important um, while the cultures are run. And then when the cultures come back and the baby is recovered, which they usually have just from this transient tachypnea as a newborn, then, then they're sent home. So they might spend one, maybe two, if that days at a different hospital, but it's a big production to transfer them, to get them a bed, to wait for the, the infant transport team to come and get them and to transfer them. Um, and if they could just stay at our hospital with an IV and there was a nurse to observe them for a little while um, while they do this transition, then that would allow them to stay. Um, so same with, with hypoglycemic babies, for example, the mom with gestational diabetes, they often need help with an IV and sugars for one or two days maybe. Um, and if we could do that at Peace Arch, it would reduce the need to transfer a lot and, and those parents could stay with their babies. So sometimes when these babies get transferred, because maternity is so busy, especially in our region, there often isn't a bed for mom. So she has to wait till she can be discharged to go join baby um, at the receiving site where baby is getting the observation and support they need. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of reasons it would be really nice to just be able to do that low-risk care at PSARCH. Mm-hmm. Mm. And and so presumably when the baby's being moved, mum is sort of has to go. Well, presumably goes with baby. Yeah. Well, we call Same it hopeful, not always. <laughs> so oh, that would okay. be the best case scenario. Yeah. Um, but because the, if if mum, for example, is just a few hours post C-section, um, they the, they need a nurse at the receiving site and a bed, and that's mm. the problem is finding a bed for mum at the receiving site. It's called a compassionate transfer, but. Often they they don't have a bed where they have a where they have enough nurses to look after mom, then they accept baby and sometimes the the other parent or partner or um, grandparent or somebody else goes with the baby and mom has to stay at PSARCH until either she can get a bed at that other site or she gets discharged from PSARCH. Her care is looked after. So it sounds like with a little bit of effort, a little bit more support, that you could avoid quite a lot of these transfers. Yes, I mm. think so. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. So we're, looking, we're running the stats right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I just wanted to um, talk a little bit because I, uh, I sort of, I guess, had uh, a, a, an experience where, well, a couple of experiences, but one where I was pretty much working in um, a place where there was um, essentially, I guess you could say, no maternity services. Um, so I, I worked in in uh, Sudan for Medicine Sans Frontier um, and so they I went there and uh, this was a sort of a startup project so there was structurally a hospital there but it was sort of defunct um, you know and so we had to sort of 
get it up and running and, and this kind of thing. So there was a, uh, there was a, 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 a midwife um, and then a couple of uh, traditional birth um, attendants that sort of worked at the hospital. Um, but the vast majority of deliveries were um, in the, happening in the community uh, through these traditional birth attendants. Uh, there was another aid agency that was doing something resembling antenatal care. Um, so they would do some observations and, and give them like a pack, like some food and folic acid, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it was one of these situations where it was, um, so I'd gone out there without, uh, I mean, I, I had done maternity, um, but I was probably better sort of medically than sort of hands-on. Um, uh-huh. And there was a hospital for about four hours away, but you know, through, well, f- four hours on the worst road in, on earth or something, <laughs> some sort of horrible dirt road. Um, so, you, you know, so we could move uh, women out. Um, I mean, I was just thinking about it. So uh, it's interesting because the problems there... Um, you know, some of this is because I think at, at least initially the maternity unit there was somewhat neglected because there were so many other things that needed to be done there in terms of just getting yeah. basic care provided. Um, mm-hmm. and so, uh, y- you know, whenever I got called there, it was for some kind of disaster. Um, so, but I was thinking back actually because I haven't thought about this in quite a while and and um I didn't actually see any oh I can't remember seeing any actual difficult deliveries so things like shoulder dystocias or other difficult deliveries I didn't see them now that doesn't mean that they didn't happen in the community um but I think some of this is that they you know this is a sort of population where there's uh you know, basically there's no contraception, um, yeah. you know, so I, th- I think I actually, I actually went to the, the, so the WHO came around and they, they, you know, I had some person saying, you know, you want some condoms for the community and, and he asked me how many, uh, and then he, I didn't really know as so he said, do you want 20,000? And I said, Yes, and then I started. I, I didn't. I, I was worried that I was going to get these massive boxes that I didn't have anywhere to store. <laughs> but anyway, it was actually just a small box. But anyway, um, I went to. So I went to the men's. Yeah, so I went to the men's ward and started. I remember um, asking if anybody even knew what a condom was, and um, they. You know, I think there was an older gentleman that said he'd heard of such things. Um, wow. So. So there was none of that going on. So I think, anyway, I'm, I've kind of gone off on a tangent, but I think the point was was that uh, I, I think that the women there, you know, your average woman probably knew how to handle a, a delivery. You know, they, they seemed to sort of, there didn't seem to be so much of those difficult deliveries or I didn't see the babies coming in after a difficult delivery. So the problems that I seemed to see was uh, eclampsia and retained placentas so i didn't i mean it there was obviously preeclampsia out there 
I probably wasn't seeing it or I can only remember one or two where, you know, there's some woman coming in that's really sick with, say, preeclampsia. They just seemed mm -hmm. to come in with um, just straight up eclampsia. They would come in uh, with the seizures. Um, mm -hmm. So I had one, uh, one woman, she came in having a seizure and she also had a retained placenta at the same time. So, and we, I don't know why, but we didn't have any syntocin, so syntocin on, so I can't remember whether that was because it was at, uh, near the beginning or whether we used it all up and we're waiting for, you know, our sort of next sort of truck to come from Khartoum. Um, but anyway, we didn't have any syntocin in, and so we gave her, so it was just me, sorry, it was just me and this other sort of local doctor. Um, and so we gave her the magnesium and which stopped the seizure, but dropped her blood pressure even more. Um, so she was then sort of, I don't know, 80, 90 over 60. And I was trying to deliver this placenta and, and, uh, uh, and, and failing and, and was trying to do some kind of manual evacuation, which I'd never, ever done before. Um, so oh, what was the, so what is this, the, what is the solution to this problem? And it, it's somewhat obvious. It didn't feel obvious at the time. Um, but it's sort of just an interesting thing. Did you have any idea what you would do? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. How, how am I going to deliver this placenta? So I can't, she's not going to survive transfer. Basically, she's not going to survive getting out of there. Um, so, so, so what we ended up, uh, what we ended up, so Basically, the other doctor said, oh, let's, let's feed the baby, let's, let's give baby to mum. And as soon as uh, baby started feeding, within about a minute, minute, minute and a half, I delivered the placenta. So, oh my goodness, wow. <laughs> but yeah, no, I didn't, it was sort of, it's, sort, it's kind of when you say it, it's sort of the obvious, of course, um, yes. yeah, the obvious thing. But, you know, in the middle of all of this, you're not, you're not necessarily thinking, like that, you've got a woman that was, was unconscious, you know, and, and this kind of thing. Yeah, so, I'm thinking of a seething woman, but you're right. You're right. <laughs> because yeah. I see, see, that's the contrast. I've seen a clamsia once, yeah. and it was because she was using cocaine. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that, that's, oh, just a contrast, yeah. Yeah, so I think because it's just, that's the a value of sort of antinote because you're picking these things up. But, yeah, I saw a lot of, I saw a lot of eclampsia. Um, mm. and so this lady, I think she, you know, so, so I, so actually, so out there, you, we didn't have, we, we didn't have any pumps. So the magnesium, you're just running, like you just drip, it's just going, you know, oh, yeah. And you count, you count the drops. So five, I think it's five drops is one mil. So then you calculate it and, and this, this kind of thing, which, which was fine. I think it got a bit you know it was a bit more worrying with the babies and stuff if you're trying to do something there um so i think she did end up getting help um and um because she was quite sick for for quite a few days so we we did transfuse her um, um and so again transfusion is basically like from directly from person to person so, so you have you quite literally there's a line going into a bag and then it goes there's another line that goes into the other person 
So we had some strips for HIV, uh, hepatitis, and syphilis, but you know this is and you could match, but this was like a you could match. Okay. we could yeah, but it was like a high risk thing to do. And then if you yeah. needed to do it, you're like you're you're going to the family and you're like okay, bring everybody here. Bring bring everybody you can, and we'll start testing them to try and get the 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 you know match. So like people are being woken up, um, and I was uh, so I was totally useless because I was AB I'm AB positive, so so I'm a, I'm a taker. I I can't give I couldn't give blood to anybody. <laughs> so, so, where did you learn to do all this? Was there like some training or you just learn on the job? I think you're learning on the job. I mean, I've done some of these things before. Uh, MSF do provide lots of books and stuff. Like, you know, you, you are sort of somewhat resourced in that way. They have their own uh, guide, particular, particular guidelines and protocols for lots of things. Um, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, and then, as I said in the last podcast, I had this book as well that had loads of this kind of stuff yeah and, and the other yeah just before we finish i think the other thing that i wanted to sort of mention is so this is a great plug for press feeding so out there essentially i mean you don't have a choice if you if you know if there's a baby um that doesn't have a mum um that they're base you know they're not going to make it although there is some formula around in town it's there's no clean water or you know, this kind yeah. of thing, or, or there is, but it, you know, I mean, it just doesn't, you know, it's just such high risk formula yeah. in that context. And, and so, but actually you didn't see much um, sickness in babies till about six months, six months to a year, um, uh. because they were all breastfed and they were fine. And then after that, that's when the problem started. So they would be, um, they would have lots of infections. There was lots of malaria out there, and and they would, you know, start to go a bit downhill or develop malnutrition or just come in. So there was a lot of um, sepsis in sort of your six month to two month old. So that was where your peri, your it's not perinatal, but that, that sort of under fives mortality, uh, mm -hmm. very very high, would come mm -hmm. in at that point. But when they were breastfeeding exclusively breastfeeding uh they were actually right. fine yeah yeah do they keep breastfeeding too often until no yeah so they yeah so i mean <laughs> this is this was a staffing issue because like so the staff with the like i'm going to breastfeed my three and a half year old uh or something like that and they would go off at mm -hmm. lunch um you know, and be like, oh, what do, you know how do we cover the ward you know, this kind of thing okay <laughs> just they'd like pop off home for like 45 minutes or whatever so, uh, so yeah, no, it's, it's very different. And, and, you know, one of the other thoughts I sort of had was around, um, you know, how important these things are, um, you know, to have these kind of services. And that in some ways, it's sort of a marker of your society, how advanced or how civilized your society is, is that these sort of perinatal maternal morbidity and mortality rates because it 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 the, I, I think that a lot feeds into it so it reflects economics it reflects you know mental health uh you know social you know uh, inequality gender inequality you know all of these things kind of 
you know, the state of your healthcare system, all of these things feed into those stats. So, you know, I think, I think we should be, that's, you know, something that governments should be looking at and, and saying this is how good we're doing rather than the things that we use at the moment. <laughs> Definitely. It does. It is really reflective of, of so many different factors. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah. So with that, I was going to, um, end that interview unless there was, uh, anything else you want to add or, or talk about? No. Thank okay. you. Logan. Okay. Thank you. So, um, thank you so much for doing this because, uh, we've kind of pulled this together at uh, quite short notice. Uh, so, you know, I know a lot of people don't want to to be recorded and interviewed and things, and it's uh, you know it's, it can be somewhat stressful. So I, I I really appreciate it. No problem. Okay, thank you. Take care. Thanks. You're welcome. Bye bye. So I feel there's a few things that um, we didn't explain properly during that podcast. So the scenario um, where the woman has a retained placenta. Um, basically what's going on there if we can't get the placenta out she's going to uh, basically bleed to death and how we solve the situation is that when uh, women breastfeed they oxytonin which um, contracts the uterus and um, causes the placenta to deliver so we uh, have a synthetic version of this uh, syntocinin which is what um, we give women um, after they completed their delivery. And that was the drug that we were uh, lacking. The HELP syndrome that we were referring to is hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelets, which is a variant or complication of preeclampsia and or eclampsia. I wanted to thank um, Cassandra again for all the hard work she's done um, at the maternity unit um, as a family physician as well and also as a long-serving uh, board member at the Division of uh, Family Practice.